Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I have been preaching a series of sermons entitled, A Call for Men to be Godly. And so far in the series, I have called men from the Scriptures to be sexually pure men, spiritually industrious men, sober and sober-minded men, and last week we saw spirit-filled men. As we continue to see what God has called us all to be, but in particular, I've been applying this specifically to men. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. The Word of God says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. As the Apostle Paul nears the end of his letter to the church at Corinth, he stirs up the church by way of exhortation and commands. He gives four imperatives, four pithy commands in verse 13. Be on the alert. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Be sober. Be sober-minded. Be clear-headed. Be of sound judgment. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Be sober. Be on the alert. The second imperative, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the doctrine that has been given to us in the Word of God, here described as the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now these qualities are to characterize the whole church, male and female, together as the one body of Christ. While these things should characterize the whole church, these are qualities that we do associate particularly with men. If the church is going to thrive in this present evil age, if the church is to withstand the attacks of the adversary, the devil, if the church is to stand against the onslaught onslaught of attacks in this spiritual battle, if the gospel is to be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, and if disciples are to be made among all the nations, if we are to walk holy and hold fast to the truth, then we need to, according to the Scriptures... Act like men. Andrizomai is the Greek word from which this is translated, which comes from a, a root, word, root word in Greek, which means man. Aner is the Greek word that, one of the Greek words that means man. Andros is the genitive case, and you hear andrizomai from that. And it's an imperative. Be on the alert. Stand firm. Act like men. We'll we'll look at that word in more detail in a subsequent week. But that word is translated in what's called the Septuagint, the, the Old Testament translation, or excuse me, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's translated there, be courageous. 
And then that's found with these words, be strong. So we could summarize it in this way. We're to be sober-minded, steadfast, courageous, and strong. And in light of that, having preached on sexually pure men, spiritually industrious men, sober men, and spirit-filled men, you might think then the next subject would be strong men. For men are to be strong, strong in faith, steadfast, courageous. If someone says, be a man, what do you think about? You should think steadfast, courageous, brave, strong. Now, the world has twisted what it means to be a man, but we're talking about thinking God's thoughts as revealed in the Scripture. And that's what we have in verse 13. We could summarize these four imperatives by the last imperative. Be strong. Men are called to be strong. And I will preach a sermon calling men to be strong and what that means practically. But actually this morning, I want us to consider a quality that is often pitted against and seen as contradictory to being strong. And that's found in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. There are four commands in verse 13 and one in verse 14. And when we look at those four commands in verse 13, we say, yes, they go together. Be on the alert, stand firm, act like men, be strong. But I submit to you that the exhortation of verse 13 is not complete without verse 14. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only pens, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong, but also pens, let all that you do be done in love. And as I apply this to us as men, we should never separate men, those two. We should never separate those two verses. Be strong, be loving. So to keep the the S's in my series, be strong, and dare I say, men, be sensitive. And instead of seeing those two traits as contradictory, be strong, be sensitive, be loving, They really go hand in hand, men. A strong man without godly affections. A strong man without godly sensitivities. A strong man without godly loves is nothing more than a brute. And we sometimes think that being masculine means being hard, impenetrable, without appropriate affections. A rugged man. And of course, men are to be strong. We're going to talk about that. You might say, why are you preaching on verse 14 in the implications before verse 13, since that's not the order of the text here? That will be clear in a moment. Let me say to all of us, but men in particular, being strong doesn't mean that a man is to be insensitive, unaffectionate, uncaring, and unloving. 
nor is a man to be stoical. A stoic was a disciple of a philosopher named Zeno, a Greek philosopher who taught in Athens around 300 years before the coming of Christ. Zeno taught in his Stoic philosophy that men should be free from passion, unmoved by joy or grief. We would say it this way, you're to be unfeeling. And therefore, the term a Stoic or being stoical, define the person not affected by passion. To be stoic or stoical was to be unfeeling. And we are created by God and called by God as believers. Not to be unmoved and unaffected and unfeeling, but to be men of great feeling and great and godly affections. We are called to be passionate about that which is good, that which is godly, that which is holy. And in this sense, we are called men to have deep feelings, deep emotions directed by God and by His Word. We are to have holy emotions, holy feelings. So, but aren't men supposed to be strong? Well, again, I say to you, men, being strong is not opposed to being sensitive in the biblical sense of what that means. A godly man is, is both strong and sensitive, strong and loving, and the two are not opposed to each other. And we see them here wrapped up in these five imperatives. Remember, our verses, our chapters and verses are added for our ability to be able to look it up. It was added later. When the Apostle Paul was pinning this as he was inspired by the Spirit of God, there's not this separation of verses 13 and 14 as we visually see it and sometimes think of it. No, he's giving five imperatives that are wed together perfectly. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the Lord. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So men, we are to be strong and sympathetic. We are to be, if I can just use the word tough, (laughs) but also tender. Firm, firm in the faith, standing firm, but also kind-hearted. We're to be men of deep conviction. We're to know what the faith is, the content of sound doctrine in the Word of God, and we're to stand firm on it. But we're also to be men of heartfelt compassion. So men's spiritual, physical, and emotional strength doesn't exclude being sympathetic, tender, understanding, and compassionate. Do we not see both in the Lord Jesus Christ? So men, today, I call you to be men of passion. Not sinful passion, but godly passion. We're to be men of deep feeling, godly feeling, godly emotions, godly affections. We're to love God deeply. We're to love others sincerely. We're to love the Word of God and hold to it steadfastly. We're to love the lost and weep for their souls. We're to love our wives. 
to love our children. We are to love the church, the people of God. We are to be driven by and directed by godly affections, godly loves. And in this way, we are to be strong men. So men, you have been called by God to be sexually pure. Tying it together with what I'm talking about today, you can't be sexually pure without holy loves. Unholy desires must be met and overcome by holy loves for God and for your wife. Men, God has called you to be spiritually industrious. But love must direct that careful walk. You must love God and the Word of God and the will of God and make the most of your time. See, love is a part of that. Men, God has called you to be sober men, sober-minded, alert, watchful, vigilant, clear-headed. You can't do that without a consuming love for God. God calls you to be filled with the Spirit, men. Dependent upon, directed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of the Spirit. And is not love the first fruit of the Spirit listed for us in Galatians 5.22? The fruit of the Spirit is love. All other godly traits that we will consider for men in this call to be godly must be directed by love. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for wife, love for children, love for the Word of God. And God has called you to be leaders, leading your families under the headship of Christ for their spiritual good. But that leadership is not godly and holy unless it is loving leadership. Man, God calls you to follow the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, by being a servant. For Jesus himself said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This kind of servanthood flows from love. For we know love by this, that he, the Lord Jesus, laid down his life for us. 1 John 3, verse 16. So in this, do you see the permeating nature of love? Love is to permeate all that we do and all that we are as believers, and in particular as we apply this to men. Yes, be alert, be sober, be sober-minded. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be courageous and brave in the things of God. Be strong and let all that you do, let all of this be permeated and every aspect of your life be permeated. I love. So men, this morning, I call you to be godly men by calling you to be loving men. Men of right and godly affections, having holy affections, holy loves, 
Be men of love. Again, be strong and sympathetic, tough and tender, firm and kind-hearted, men of deep conviction and men of felt heart or heartfelt, excuse me, compassion. Again, we're going to focus on the call to be strong in a couple of weeks or so. This morning, may I exhort you men and call you to be loving men. If you're to be godly, then you must be loving. You should be lovers, we should say, in the biblical sense of the word. Lovers of God, lovers of good, lovers of the word of God, lovers of the lost, lovers of your wives and your children, lovers of the church of Jesus Christ. And so, men, let me just put it this way. We must purpose to be loving men. We must be intentional and focused upon letting this love that is commanded here in verse 14, but elsewhere in Scripture, let it permeate all that we are, our character and every aspect of our lives, all of our relationships. We must purpose to be loving men. Why is it that we must purpose to do so? Let me give you three reasons this morning. We must purpose men to be loving men. First, because of the consequences of sin. Secondly, because of the centrality of love in the scriptures. And thirdly, because of the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must purpose to be loving men because of the consequences of sin, the centrality of love in the scriptures, and because of the example of of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, let's consider the reason that we're to purpose to be loving men because of the consequences of sin. Now, I've been preaching in Ephesians chapter 5, and often as a preacher, as you know, I preach through books of the Bible, expository preaching verse by verse. But preaching as a pastor in this context, is often mixed with with various things. There's proclamation. This is true. There's exhortation and calling the body of Christ and hear men to say, in light of that, now let's do this by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. And there's exhortation. Sometimes there's explanation and exposition of a particular passage. Today is going to be more proclamation and exhortation. There's going to be some explanation. I just explained some things from those two verses in 1 Corinthians 16. There's going to be some explanation about the fall, but there's going to be proclamation and exhortation as well. As we've gone through Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, be spiritually industrious men. And then Ephesians 5, 18, be sober men and spirit-filled men. We're going to continue, God willing, next week in that passage where then in Ephesians 5, 25, it says, Husbands, if you're spirit-filled men, here's what you do. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for us. 
And at the heart of then the exhortation to spirit-filled men is that they must purpose to love their wives even as Christ has loved the church. Now, why such a command? Why not husbands lead your wives instead of what's written there, love your wives? Well, I think one reason for this command to love our wives, to be men characterized by love in that most intimate of relationships and most important of human relationships, is because of the consequences of sin, because of the consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I've asked the question, why must we purpose to be loving men? Because of the consequences of sin. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter Chapters 1 and 2, God made man in his image. He created them male and female. We have some particulars of that and the order of that and why he created uh, Eve to be a helpmeet to him. And God created male and female marriage, the roles in marriage. This is all God's creation. It's very good. But then we ask the question, what went wrong? Why is there rebellion against God's created order in marriage? And why is it so hard to fulfill those roles that God has ordained in marriage? God created Adam, and he created him to be the spiritual head of his wife Eve, who was given to him for his assistance as a helper. And the two joined together in perfect unity in this one flesh relationship would then glorify God together. Equal in value and dignity, but differing in roles in that relationship. So from the beginning, there was perfect unity and harmony in the marriage relationship until until sin entered the picture in Genesis 3. And when sin enters the picture, that relationship is affected. In what way? Well, we find one way in Genesis 3, verse 16. Genesis 3, verse 16. Now, you're, you're familiar here, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve having sinned against God and broken that commandment to eat of the tree that was, the fruit of that tree that was forbidden. Now God is giving consequences, negative consequences for their disobedience. And he has spoken to the serpent, but now in Genesis 3, verse 16, he's speaking to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. But here's the phrase I want you to focus on. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now that phrase, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you, is a pronouncement of the consequences of sin and how sin has affected the marriage relationship. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what does that mean? Two key words. Desire in the first part of the verse or the phrase, and then rule in the second part. Speaks of the woman's desire 
in the man's rule. Now, to understand what this means, you have to compare, do a word study and understand what the word desire means and the word rule means in this context. Because men, you might say, that sounds like a good thing. Your desire will be for your husband. But remember, it's in the consequence of sin, the negative consequences of sin upon the relationship. If you look in chapter 4, verse 7, you'll get a clue as to how this word desire is meant in the negative sense. Remember in chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. And God says to Cain in Genesis 4, verse 7, If you do well, Cain, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the, the, excuse me, the door. Its desire is for you. So there's the word. Its desire. Sin's desire is for you. It's the same Hebrew word that is translated in chapter 3, verse 16, as your desire will be for your husband. Now, in what way is sin's desire going to be for Cain? Not in a good way, but God is warning Cain That sin's desire is for you, to master you, to rule you. It's going to want to take you by by your throat and have its way with you. It is not your friend. It's going to act like your enemy. Sin's desire is for you. But then he says, but you, Cain, must master or rule over it. There's a battle going on now. You have to rule over it. Now you, same Hebrew word there, translated master, that's translated rule in Genesis 3.16. So what does it mean? Genesis 3.16 now describes the conflict we face in our marriages. And one of the consequences of sin is a rebellion against what God has created and ordained in marriage. Simply put, sin brings strife into the marriage relationship Instead of mutual oneness, now there's mutual enmity. Because of sin, the wife now has a desire to usurp the authority given by God to her husband. And the husband will now be inclined to rule, to abuse his authority and leadership. Your desire is going to be to rule over him. And now there's mutual enmity. Instead of loving leadership, now he's going to want to rule over you in an authoritarian way. And now there's conflict in marriage because of sin. Now in light of that, what needs to be emphasized to the woman to fulfill her role? Well, Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Don't seek to, to master him. Fulfill that role God has given to you as his helper. That's not our subject today. But then to the husband it says, because you're now going to be in this mutual enmity, and now you're going to abuse that loving authority that God has given to you for his glory and for her spiritual good, Because of that abuse of authority, now here's what you need to hear, men. Love your wives. Your headship is not an authoritarian, I'm going to rule over her. But no, you need to love your wife. Even as Christ 
has loved you in the church. His headship over you is not an authoritarian, unkind, unloving rule. There's a sweetness to that rule. So men, your leadership must be like the loving headship of Christ over his church. Love your wives. Men, we have to purpose to love our wives because of the consequences of sin. Before the fall, Adam was a loving leader. There was loving headship. In that one flesh relationship, which does not simply include the physical intimacy of marriage, but when it says the two shall become one flesh, it means that they together in oneness and unity serve God to the glory of God, and their relationship perfectly brings glory to the one who created it. Sin enters into the picture, and now men, our tendency is to rule, to be strong, but not in a godly way. And so therefore we need to heed the instruction. We need to be loving men who love our wives. And we have to purpose to do this because everything in us that is still remaining corruption is going to try to rule over her. And let's just say it this way. Not just that, but the rule that God gave to Adam in dominion over the earth and all the the ways in which that rule is to be expressed to the glory of God is going to be abused. And we, therefore, now who are in Christ have to understand what that loving governance, leadership, and headship is. So, men, we have to purpose to be loving men because of the consequences of sin. It does not come naturally. Say, why is it that men struggle with this? Because we're sinners. That's why. And now as those who have been saved by the grace of God, he says, let me mold you into the likeness of Christ. Let me mold you into loving men. And the world, again, presses us of what loving means. And when I use the word sensitive, I use it carefully and And there needs to be explanation. Why? Because the world presents to us an effeminate man. And then the world presents to us the brute. Neither are biblical. We need to be informed by the scriptures, men. We need to understand the consequences of sin upon our hearts, upon our lives, our affections. And we need to purpose to be loving men by the grace of God as defined by scriptures. So men, why must we purpose to be loving men? Because of the consequences of sin, but also because of the centrality of love in the scriptures. Again, this is elementary, isn't it? Love for God is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second great commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so now as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, He is sanctifying us that we would be those who love God and love our neighbor, love God and love our wives, love God and love the lost, love God and love our children and the church. And this is central. This is at the heart of the Christian life. Walk in love. For Christ has loved you. 
the moral law of God summed up in the Ten Commandments can be summed up according to Scripture by the word love. Galatians 5 verse 14 says that the whole law, referring to, in that context, the last six commandments, is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the one word in that statement that summarizes and fulfills the whole law is love. Romans 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. As I mentioned earlier, love is first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the greatest Christian virtue 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the right and godly motivation for our obedience to God. And love for God will always produce obedience to God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So central in our obedience to our Savior and Lord is love. So here we see the centrality, or you could say the priority of, or the primacy of love. Love for God first, and then love for neighbor, and those made in the image of God, including our wives, our children, and those who are still without Christ. It must permeate everything because it's central. Flip over to Titus chapter 2. Let me just, again, I'm showing you this in various scriptures. I want to to demonstrate this to you, the centrality of love. We have to purpose men to be men who are loving because it's central to the Christian life. Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, Titus, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. So speak and proclaim things that are fitting for, consistent with doctrine that is sound, healthy, orthodox. And then he says, verse 2, older men. Here's what's fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate. Dignified, sensible. Again, I preached on those things, just haven't pointed you to this particular verse. Here it is, to be sober men, sober-minded men who are temperate, self-controlled, and sensible. But then he says this, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. Doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13? You're to be sound. You're to be rooted in. Your life is to be grounded in this. This is what a healthy, you might say, which is what the word sound literally means here in the Greek. Here's what a healthy, mature walk with Christ looks like. You're sound in faith, but not only that, you're sound in love. 
and sound in perseverance. But notice, sound in love. One commentator says this, Godly men should also be sound in love. Their hearts have grown fixed to their families, to the church, and above all, to a longing desire for God. These healthy loves are joined to a corresponding hatred of sin and evil. You get the picture here that that the centrality of love and all that it means when we love God and we love others as God has commanded, then this is at the heart of the Christian life because now they're not only godly affections, but now they're holy hatreds. You've heard me talk about often. Abhor what is evil, it says in Romans 12. Cling to what is good. So now, as you purpose to grow in love, now you're being sanctified. They're holy desires, holy loves. But they're also holy hatreds of sin. So men, we have to purpose to be men characterized by love. First, because of the consequences of sin and the temptation to abuse the role that God has given to us. But also because of the centrality of love in the scriptures, its primacy and priority and how it permeates all of life, creating holy affections. But thirdly, men, we have to purpose to be characterized by love because of the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. When Paul writes to men, husbands in particular, and he says, you're to be characterized by love. It is to be the atmosphere of your home and your relationship with your wife, and you're the one who is to drive that Love your wives. Then he quickly points, just as Christ also loved the church. Men, we can't be loving men unless we're understanding the love of God for sinners in Christ. It has to be gospel-centered. It can't be you-centered and me-centered. Then we'll sin. It has to be gospel-centered. It's rooted in the gospel that we so understand the love of God for us in Christ, that now that directs our affections and our loves. That now affects our relationships, and in particular here with our wives. We followed the example of the Lord Jesus. You understand the Lord Jesus was a man of holy, godly affections. The Lord Jesus was a strong man, resolute. In the incarnation, he came as the second Adam to fulfill the law for us, and he was resolute. He always did the will of his Father. He was spiritually industrious. He came for a purpose, a unique purpose as the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, to do the will of God, to be our Savior. He was strong. He could not be dissuaded from doing the will of God. But oh, what a loving man he was. I have pointed this out many times. Let me do it again. John chapter 11. Turn there. John chapter 11. There's so many distortions about the person of Christ, but in him we see the perfect man. And in John chapter 11, you're familiar with the chapter, Lazarus has died. Jesus 
comes upon a scene in which there's much weeping and wailing in verses 32 and 33 over the death of Lazarus. And it tells us in verse 33, John eleven thirty-three, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He wasn't a stoic. He was deeply moved and he was deeply troubled. And I don't have time to, to go through all the details of what that means, but the word deeply moved and troubled here implies the idea that he's not just disturbed by... All the weeping and wailing. It's not like, oh, what a, this is a troubling situation here. This is unhappy. No, it's, it carries with it the idea of a, an indignation and a, a measure of outrage. He's not over the weeping and wailing, but the consequence or, or why it's happening. He, he sees the reality of death. And having loved Lazarus so deeply and seen the consequences of sin and upon the effects of the people, Mary, Martha, he's troubled. He's not unaffected. Men, Jesus was a man of deep affection and feeling. And he was stirred up in the face of death. Again, he wasn't stoic and unfeeling. He was troubled. He was moved even disturbed as he saw the consequences of sin. And this should be the response of a godly man to these things. We should be men of deep feeling, godly emotions and affections. And you're familiar that then it tells us in the so-called shortest verse in the Bible, for whatever that means, in verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. As the eternal Son of God who became a man, when he saw the awfulness of death, and this one whom he loved greatly, because it tells us in the Scriptures he loved Lazarus, he wept. Again, you've heard me say it before, but not in this context. Men, here's what J.C. Ryle said about the weeping of Christ. He said it's deeply instructive. It shows us that it is not sinful to sorrow. Weeping and mourning are sadly trying to to flesh and blood and make us feel the weakness of our mortal nature. But they are not in themselves wrong. Even the Son of God wept. It shows us that deep feeling is not a thing of which we need to be ashamed. Men, listen to this. To be cold and stoical and unmoved in the sight of sorrow is no sign of grace. There's nothing unworthy of a child of God in tears. Even the Son of God could weep. Men, let me say it this way. There's nothing unworthy of a godly man weeping. Jesus wept. He wasn't dispassionate or emotionless. He wept. And when we see godly responses in the scriptures, when, when Epaphroditus almost died in Philippians 1.27, the Apostle Paul said that he was thankful that God spared his life, lest he have sorrow upon sorrow. Again, these are godly affections. It's because he loved Epaphroditus. Jesus loved Lazarus. 
The weeping of Jesus was a compassion born out of love. Now, he would then, or he had already said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus come forth. But what a compassionate Savior. The signs and miracles pointed to Jesus as the Christ. But the miracles of Jesus also pointed to his great compassion and mercy for sinners in their plight. The scripture tells us in Matthew 9, as he was going through the villages, verses 35 and 36, and preaching and teaching, proclaiming the gospel among them, that he was healing diseases and every kind of sickness. And yes, it proclaimed him that the Christ has come. But it also tells us of his compassion, for it says in Matthew 9, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. For they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And often the Bible tells us of this. In Matthew 14, 14, he saw a large crowd. He felt compassion for them and healed their sick. In Matthew 15, 32, he called the disciples to himself. And he said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained for me three days and have nothing to eat. He didn't want to send them away hungry. Matthew 20, verse 34, moved with compassion, it says, Jesus touched their eyes, these two blind men, and immediately they regained their sight. You see, permeating the righteous Savior was compassion and love. Would this be a a study for us men? The righteousness of Christ in His life here on earth. Yes, that He might be the spotless Lamb, the sinless Savior, but then the example for us of what it means to be a loving man. In John 13, I read the words in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, And here's that phrase you've heard me preach on before that I love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And then what we have is Jesus then in John 13 washes their feet. He serves them. The Son of God humbles himself to wash their feet. And then in the subsequent chapters, in the upper room discourses, he's in those last hours with his disciples. He's concerned for them because he knows as he tells them and prepares them for his arrest and his crucifixion and that he's going to die, he's concerned to comfort them. And he tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit, the comforter. He's concerned for them. He loves his disciples. Again, he's not a a stoical man that's unfeeling. And in John 14, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Do you hear the compassion and love in those words? Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he tells them of a place he's going to prepare that he's going to, and he'll come back and receive them to his own. So you remember Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Philip's not understanding any more than Thomas understood. And Jesus said, now listen, I'm going to read it in the way it wasn't said. Have I not been with you so long? And yet you've not come to know me, Philip? No, that's not the manner in which Jesus now with these disciples that are still seeking to grasp what's taking place. No, it's have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me? And he patiently instructs them, lovingly instructs them, and prepares them for that time when he will be absent. He seeks to comfort these whom he loves so dearly. And even hanging on the cross. In John 19, 26, he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby. And while he is bearing the wrath that our sins deserve, and in great physical agony and pain, he says, woman, behold your son. He's concerned for his mother to be cared for after his death. Evidently, Joseph had died. Now John cares for her as a son would a mother. And then after his resurrection, the the restoration of Peter. It's not, Peter, you numbskull. (laughs) It's, Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. And he gently, lovingly, not without correction, do you love me, Peter? But yet gently, lovingly restores Peter. I mean, we have to purpose to be loving men because our Savior is loving. Men, do you not want a sympathetic high priest? Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, do you not find comfort in those words? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, does it not give your heart joy to then hear the exhortation, therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need? You know why that's so comforting to us believers and in particular think about this, men? Because you know that what you need is a loving, compassionate, sympathetic, high priest who knows your frame that you're but dust who knows your remaining corruption that you are weak and you need help and in his great love not only in our justification but then as he bears us through to the end says come to my throne and there you'll find a loving sympathetic tender merciful gracious high priest men Do we not see a strong and resolute, steadfast Savior, but also a loving, compassionate Savior? Is that not what we desire, men, in our walk with God through Christ? Then men, let us be that. 
in the roles and responsibilities that God has given to us. In all the various relationships that we have, men, let us purpose and begin to apply these things in our relationships. Not unfeeling men, not dispassionate men, but men filled with the Spirit who bear the fruit of love to the good of those that God has given in our sphere, in our church, and in our relationships at home. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we again confess that our own remaining corruption and the ways of this world, the lies of an adversary, often affect what we think it means to be men, what it means to be masculine. Father, I pray that we would not be deceived by both the unbiblical extremes and everything that the world puts before us. But Lord, may we be men who are strong and steadfast and immovable in the faith. May we act like men who are called to lead and be courageous and brave and to lead the people of God, our homes, in spite of whatever the world tells us that we're to do and wants to make us passive. But Lord, may we be loving men of heartfelt compassion and love with deep and godly feelings and affections. And in this way, may we be like our Savior. And may we build up the body of Christ. And may we love our wives and our children And Father, may we in this way have compassion for those who do not know you. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.